Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is appropriate that each year after the most holy feast of Pentecost, we celebrate the solemnity of this great day, the most holy trinity. The Holy Spirit has now been fully given and revealed to the church, and this completes our understanding of God. So every good Jew knows that God is Father and God is one. And then Jesus comes into the world and begins to reveal himself to the 12, to his disciples, and eventually they realize he's God too. Now this has got to be complicated for a Jew because God is one. Now if the Father's God and Jesus is God and Jesus says the Father and I are one, again, they're trying to understand this mystery. And then Jesus starts teaching them about the Holy Spirit. He's going to give them the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come to you. He comes from the Father. And so then they finally understand this last mystery that God is Trinitarian. And this for us as Christians is actually the greatest mystery of the faith. The fact that our God is a trinity of persons. He is one, truly. One in mind, one in heart, and yet three persons. Eternal. Now we can't necessarily understand how this is, but we always try to glean some understanding, at least even just a little bit. And there are many things that God has done in creating the world and creating our natures to help us better understand him. And that's why this mystery is so essential. It's actually more important than the incarnation, the suffering, death, and resurrection, even though it's that mystery that saves us from sin. The incarnation is merely an extension of God's Trinitarian life in the physical universe. Everything we know, everything that we perceive on this level of reality only exists because this Trinitarian God made it. And when he made it, he made it based on the same truth of his own existence. Everything in the universe is Trinitarian, everything. And to illustrate this point, I'm going to give you one of my favorite examples. My, my dad and I would often talk, we still do, we still often talk about this stuff. We'll talk about physics or philosophy and try to find ways in which it's Trinitarian. So one of my favorite examples I learned long ago is that every atom is Trinitarian. It's based on the very same principle of our God. And it makes sense, since God made atoms to make up the universe, he'd make them like him. So what, at least in its basic components, makes up an atom? There are three primary parts. There are protons, there are neutrons, and there are electrons. And how do these protons, neutrons, and electrons all relate one to the other? Well, the nucleus, or the center, the focal point, you could say, of the atom are the protons and the neutrons, and they're bonded together inside the nucleus. And yet that which keeps them bonded together are the electrons what we call the electron cloud that surrounds them. So the nucleus with the protons and neutrons, just, just follow me. If you don't like physics, just trust me. It's all true. You can look it up. So the center, the focus, are the protons and the neutrons bonded to, to one another, and they exist within the electrons or within the electron cloud that surrounds the nucleus. Now, why is this Trinitarian? Well, it's not just because you have three parts to an atom, but even how they relate one to the other. You see, we know, because of Revelation, that the Father and the Son love each other eternally, and their love is the Holy Spirit. 
And if you think of it logically, the Father and the Son live in love. Love surrounds them and fills them, just like the electrons do with the protons and the neutrons. The protons and the neutrons are bonded in some special bond. What happens if you break an atom? Bad stuff happens, right? Surprise, surprise. All that energy is released. Atom bombs. So, not that it's another topic altogether. But obviously, they're meant to be bonded, and they're bonded within this electron cloud. So, electron symbolizes the Holy Spirit, protons and neutrons symbolize the Father and the Son. And everything in creation, everything, can be broken down into a Trinitarian dynamic because it's all based on the truth of who God is, and God is the one that made it. We know this very simply by our own nature. When God made Adam and Eve, he made them two originally, male and female, distinct genders. But his first command to them was be fruitful and multiply. I made you different genders, male and female. If you're wondering, there are only two. And when you come together, when you unite in the way that you're meant to, then a third is brought forth. And that completes the Trinitarian image. So, in fact, as individuals, we don't fully manifest or image the Trinity. It's as families that we do this. Fathers, mothers, and children. That's the Trinitarian image. So again, I, I encourage you, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, start looking at things, studying them, and analyzing them, and seeing how they can fit within the Trinitarian design. Everything does. Everything. One of the great examples or explanations of the Holy Trinity from the Father is language. Now, this would make sense because in the beginning of the Gospel of John, Jesus is called the Word, the Logos. And so the fathers tell us that if Jesus is the Word, then the Father is the voice. He speaks the Word. So he's the voice that speaks the word. Jesus is the word, but then who's the Holy Spirit? The truth of that word. That's the Holy Spirit. That which the word is communicating, the truth behind it. So you can break everything up into this dynamic. That's why it is the most important mystery of our faith. Not only because it's true, and God has made this known to us, but because everything in the universe finds its meaning in this mystery. And for that reason, we, as with any of the true doctrines and mysteries of the faith, should be willing to die for our belief in the Trinity. We should be willing to die, if it came to it, for our belief in any of the mysteries of the faith. Jesus Christ, as Son of God, our belief in the Eucharist, in the Church, and the sacraments, but above all, the greatest of mysteries, the mystery of of the Trinity. It's important that we actually contemplate this. Now, it's not something necessarily we hope is going to happen. Yes, I wish somebody would put a gun to my head and, and threaten me so I can die a martyr. Now, there are plenty of holy men and women who actually wish for that. There are many who went out to pagan countries hoping that they could profess faith in Christ and be killed for him and be a martyr. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Psychologically, you may think they're disordered. But the church considers that very heroic on a certain level. St. Francis of Assisi, at a certain point, got permission from the Pope to go to the Middle East. He wanted to preach to, to the Muslims, and his thought was, they're definitely going to kill me. 
<laughs> so he goes there, and you know, he's, he's in a lot of danger at times, but he was so profound in his faith and his trust in God and his willingness to die for the truths of the faith that the, the, the king at the time, I don't remember what they called him, but he wouldn't let anyone kill him because he was afraid that because of how convicted he was of his faith in Jesus, that others would leave Islam and follow him. So the, the sultan, the sultan would not allow him to be killed. He didn't want him to be a martyr. So Francis had to go back. <laughs> but we have to accept the fact that it may come to that at some point. And am I willing to die for this mystery? Now, if most of us are honest, right now in our lives, we're probably not. Most likely. I mean, I have a hard enough time even just being basically virtuous, you know, denying myself some food that I want out of love for God. Imagine myself denying my life. St. Peter is really the perfect example because when he received his first opportunity to die for Jesus, to die for the faith, he denied even knowing Jesus to save his own skin. That's the first pope of the church. Now, our Lord forgave him. He repented. And then eventually, many, many years later, he got to a point, he grew in holiness to where he was able and willing to die for Jesus, and he did. He was crucified upside down. So like Peter, that needs to be our goal. Even from the beginning, Peter wanted to love the Lord that much. He wanted to be that committed to this truth. He wasn't humble enough initially to know that he wasn't, but he grew over time. And what helped him grow and get to that point? Well, one, it was his goal. I want to be at least willing to die for him, for these truths, even if I don't get the opportunity. And the way that I grow, you could break it down. I'm sure you could break it down into three things because everything's Trinitarian, but I'm just going to focus on two. The first is obedience to God's command. Obey the teachings to the best of your ability. Seek to be the best Catholic you can be. Live in the sacraments and pray. Pray every day. Daily prayer is non-negotiable. And a good way to, to remember this is whenever you're having marital problems, what's the one thing a counselor always says you have to work on? Communication. You're not communicating well. You've got to work on your communication. Why? Because how many times does it happen where the person you go to bed beside and wake up in the morning, you don't talk to? All that does is hurt the relationship. And if that's true for a merely human relationship, it's doubly true for our relationship with God. So we have to communicate with him. And some people say, well, Father, it's difficult because, you know, he never talks back to me. What are you talking about? He's already given you his word. The whole word, all of it, not only in the scriptures, but the church has lovingly interpreted that word for you for 2,000 years and made it far more intelligible. She's given you a catechism, which is an interpretation of the written word, the scriptures, and the traditions. You have questions for God? He's, you've already got the answers, you just got to look them up. 
And, and we nowadays have less excuse than anyone in centuries past because we have Google, right? I mean, I don't even have to know where something is in the Bible, or I don't even have to look it up in the catechism. I can just Google the catechism. And there you have the specific response that Jesus gives to you, but then you have to seek to conform yourself, your mind and your heart, to that truth. That's how you grow in holiness. That's who you prepare yourselves and become ultimately more committed to these truths. And a word that we often use, that the saints often use, is devotion. You need to increase your devotion to the Lord, your devotion to God, to this Trinitarian God. Now, devotion is used in a secular way, you know, linguistically, to express love or commitment or passion about something. Like, I'm really devoted to my sports team. You know, I'm really, you know, I love them really just strongly. But that's not where devotion comes originally. From the Latin, devotion comes from the word that means to consecrate. Now, we know that consecration is when you set something apart for God. To consecrate something is to, is to set it apart for God's uses. And so, if that's the root of devotion, then when I'm doing certain things like prayer, that's an act of devotion because I'm setting time aside for God. And if I don't devote enough of who I am, my actions, my thoughts, my words, if I don't devote enough of that to God, then my devotion is weak. And therefore, my love for God, my passion for God is going to be weak as well. I may be committed to these truths. You know, I go to church on Sunday. I go to confession when I need to. But you know in your heart whether you're devoted to him. Because without that kind of passion for God, you won't have the strength to accept the grace of martyrdom if it comes. Throughout our history, we have so many examples of holy men and women. The Old Testament is filled of cases in which these men and women have died, not just for their belief in God, but for his commandments. How many times were people murdered by the pagans because they wouldn't eat pork? You're thinking, I mean, imagine that was still a commandment to this day. You're not allowed to eat pork. So somebody puts a gun to your head and says, eat pork or I'm going to kill you. God would expect you to say no and eat the bullet instead. That's what God would expect of you because it's his command. Now, luckily, thank God, we, don't, we can eat pork now. So that, that's not a sin or anything and we can do it. But there are so many other teachings that are even more profound and even more essential. The mysteries of the sacraments, the very life of Jesus Christ, you can't deny that ever for any reason, not for love of your life and not for love of another human. Even if someone were to threaten the one person in the world I love the most, I would have to accept their death first. Why? Because the truths of the faith, ultimately rooted in the truth of our God who is a trinity, these truths are more true, more profound, more essential than you or I. And God wants us to be that devoted to him, that we love him above all others, ourself, our family, 
That's not an easy thing to do. It's something we have to grow in day by day, and that's why we work on devotion. We work on improving our prayer life and our relationship with him, our love for him. I've never really been into sports. I like playing sports, but I was never like a, a, a fan, a big fanatic or anything. But over the years, I've had many friends who were really serious fanatics about this sport or that sport, you know, soccer, football, whatever, tennis. So I always had an un a hard time understanding the nature of their fanaticism. But there's nothing illogical per se about it. If you think the reason they're so fanatical about that sports team is precisely because they think about it so much. They spend so much time and energy on that team and on that sport that they have fallen madly in love with it. They are devoted to it. And it's a sports team. See, you can fall in love with anything. Absolutely anything. And since that's possible for each one of us, I have a moral obligation to be more in love with God than anyone and anything else. So all I have to do is the same thing that everybody does to get devoted to something. I have to spend more time thinking about it and talking about it, reading about it, praying about it. Devote more of yourself to God. You're all busy. You all have lives in the world. You work. You've got your families. That's understandable. God doesn't expect more than you can give, but he expects probably more than you give right now. Start off incrementally. Just add a little extra time, a little extra energy. Try to bring the Lord up in more conversations with your family or your friends. These are the simple ways in which we grow so that, again, God willing, one day, if he asked it of me, I would willingly give my life for any of these truths. And the beauty of that kind of sacrifice is if you were to die for God, for your belief in him, and for the truth of who he is, he who is the God of life and death will give you life again. That's the hope that we hold on to. We don't have to be afraid of losing our lives or losing a loved one. He's the creator. He's the redeemer. He can do all things. Take this life of mine. I'll get a better one back in heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.